Amen. Thank you so much, Dustin, Addy. Thank you for your leadership this morning. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. I like Nehemiah because of the shortest man in the Old Testament. I call him Nehemiah. Has that joke been made? I'm not sure. Either way, us short guys have to stick together. And it's been since the second week of our study that I have preached to you from this great book. And you may or not may not remember that sermon, but the subject of the sermon that morning was prayer. On that Sunday, back in April, we looked at the second part of Nehemiah chapter 1, which was a distillation of Nehemiah's four-month prayer journey there in Susa, the capital of Persia. And it was a journey that culminated in him requesting the king's favor to return to Jerusalem where he could rebuild the walls of the city. And there were lots of audacious things about the request, but perhaps the most audacious was Nehemiah was asking the Persian king not only to release him from his trusted duty as the cupbearer, but to finance the whole ambitious project. You see, Nehemiah is a guy with a passion for God's glory. And at the news that God's glory is at stake, he is driven to his knees. And in being driven to his knees, he is then driven to action. And for six chapters, chapter 2 through 7, we have Nehemiah at work. He's making the journey to Jerusalem, 800 miles. He's organizing the builders, dealing with the critics, managing the progress handling the discouragement, and in 52 days, the broken down walls of Jerusalem, they are completely restored. But as Mark pointed out last week, the completion of the wall is not the end of the book. The story doesn't end in chapter 7. Chapter 8 moves us from the building of the wall to the building of the people. The rebuilding of the people is distinct from the rebuilding of the wall. The wall involved organization and engineering and whatever 5th century architecture may have looked like. This wasn't just a privacy fence. This was a wall. We're talking national defense. 40 feet tall, 9 feet wide, 2 miles in length. Cranes and structural steel, they were, they were not a thing yet. There were no CAD drawings. This was pulleys and ropes and stones and mortar. This was work. Blood, sweat, and tears, that's what built a wall. But rebuilding the broken down people was going to look a little bit different. No bricks and mortar would be needed. What was needed to rebuild the people and their future in the land was a book. So at the start of chapter 8, God's word is called for, and that is when the rebuilding of the people would begin. And it is always an emphasis on the word of God that, that, excuse me, that lies at the heart of every reformation and revival in the history of the church. The great revivals in history have all been fueled by a recovery of scripture. That was the work of men like Huss and Wycliffe and Tyndale, those early reformers. The, the medieval period had completely lost the Bible, and so these faithful men, they translated it and taught it to the people. The 16th Reformation itself was this explosive force in Europe because of the way that it provided wide access to the Bible printed in the vernacular of the people. 
The first great awakening had an emphasis on, on biblical preaching and on the personal application of that preaching. It was completely scripture-centered. And I read this week about an old custom in the churches of Scotland. It's still customary in Scottish churches for the service to begin with the entrance of a man they call the beetle. He enters the gathered worship area carrying the Bible, which he would place on an elevated pulpit and then open it to that morning's reading. But he wouldn't stop there. He then escorts the minister to the pulpit, and the implied but obvious message in all of that is that it's the minister's job to expound the text. And all of this would be done while the people are standing in reverence of the practice. And then after the passage is read, the people would be free to sit down, which some would say, man, that, that sounds like bibliology, or excuse me, bibliolatry, I should say. Aren't, aren't they worshiping a book? Well, no, they're really not. What they're doing in that practice is formally and tangibly acknowledging that the Bible is uniquely important. They're reminding themselves that what they are about to hear is not the word of man. Rather, the Bible is the very word of God. And that's what the people in Nehemiah's day have realized as the scriptures are brought before them. That this is the very word of God. And that's what causes them to fall on their faces as it is read. What causes them to worship and cry out, Amen, Amen to its words. They are acknowledging together that this isn't just ancient literature. This isn't the poetry of Homer or the philosophy of Plato. These words are divinely revealed. This is God's word. So this morning, we'll continue to, to see the effects of God's word on the people as we look at verses 9 through 18 here in chapter 8. So if you've not turned there yet, go ahead and make your way to that passage. I've broken uh, this half of the chapter down into three sections for us this morning. Corporate repentance, corporate reading, and corporate remembrance. And what I'd like to do is rather than read the whole passage at once, I'd like to read each section as I've laid it out there in your notes. So let's start with verses 9 through 12. Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the word of the Lord. And so I've done something very intentional with that word corporate there in your outline. And just to clarify, I don't use that word corporate in the sense of a corporation or in the sense of something being incorporated. I use it in the same way we would refer to corporate worship or, or gathered worship. What you'll see throughout this passage seven or eight times, you'll see the words, the people, or all the people, 
or the assembly. Repeatedly, the author is showing the reader that this is a corporate gathering. And this makes sense because the people of God have always been a people who gather. Throughout the biblical record, God's people come together to to worship Him and to hear from Him. We, We gather to corporately commit ourselves to the Lord. Individual faith is important, but God is always calling His people into something bigger than the individual. That's why the church of the New Testament is always referred to as a collection of believers. As a, as a body with different parts, as a flock with particular sheep, as a household with different members, as a temple but with chosen stones that fit closely together. The call to Christ is a call to his people, a people who gather corporately, and when we gather, we're asking God to show up and to work in us both as a people and as individuals. And that's what God has done in this scene. He has shown up by convicting the people through the reading and the teaching of his word. Verse 9 says it very plainly, they wept as they heard the words of the law. For five or six hours, the, the people have been hearing all the ways that God has established himself as holy. And all the ways he has called his people to be a contrast society. So for five or six hours, they are hearing all the ways that they have transgressed God's law and fallen short of God's righteous standard. It's as Paul states in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And with the knowledge of sin comes conviction and grief. And this is what leads to such contrition. And really, this is the only proper response when the sinner is confronted with the holiness of God. No excuses, no alibis, uh, just, just contrition. Pure brokenness, unraveling, you might say. There's an interesting example that I'd like to use in relation to this. It's in 1992 that the Texas Educational Bureaucracy reviewed and approved a new set of history textbooks for the public school system. A group of parents concerned about the information their children were coming home with conducted their own review. They found 231 errors. The textbook reported Napoleon actually winning the Battle of Waterloo, President Truman dropping the atom bomb on Korea, and General Douglas MacArthur leading the, the anti-communist campaign in the 1950s instead of Senator Joe McCarthy. When called to account for these errors, Texas officials studied the texts again. They found more than the 231 errors the parents had first found. Then the parents found more until the tally eventually reached 5,200 mistakes in the texts that were published by Prentice Hall and Houghton Mifflin and Reinhardt and Winston. How did the publishers react to this mess? The publisher's spokesperson argued that, except for the errors, these were the finest textbooks they had ever seen. <laughs> you know, the, the believer who wants revival throws, the way, throws away that list of, of, of excuses and alibis and just responds with contrition and brokenness, knowing that he's without excuse. You remember in the book of Matthew when Jesus preached his Sermon on the Mount, he starts with what are called the Beatitudes. 
And these Beatitudes are the characteristics of the blessed life. And he starts the Beatitudes with, blessed are the poor in spirit. And what Jesus is describing there in Matthew 5 is the person who knows that they are spiritually bankrupt. They're poor in spirit. They have no good in their spiritual bank account. They are broke. And it's interesting where Jesus goes in the next beatitude, it is, blessed are those who mourn. And what he's saying is, by putting those two things side to side, it's not enough just to recognize your spiritual condition, but you must respond to it with mourning and with grief. An attitude of repentance has to overwhelm you, and it's at that point of mourning where God has you right where he wants you to be. So here in Nehemiah chapter 8, God has the people right where he wants them. They're in the right place geographically in a rebuilt Jerusalem, And now they're in the right place spiritually where they're grieving over their sins. But the leaders are not going to let them stay there and grieve. They begin to blast the people with these exhortations. These four verses are filled with commands. You can see them. Do not mourn or weep. Go your way. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet wine. Send portions to those in need. Be quiet. Do not be grieved. And what's behind all of these commands? Well, you remember that the the backdrop to all of this is that they are in the midst of a season of feasts. That's why three times they're told, this day is holy. This day is holy to the Lord. This day is holy. So the message is, hey, this is a sacred time. This is a time of celebration for you. This is the start of a new calendar year. It's time to begin again. God has commanded you to do so. You know, brokenness over sin is important, but you have to eventually lose the self-loathing and the introspection and embrace the fact that God doesn't hate you. And to neglect what God has commanded, this, this gathered people regarding the feasts, to neglect that would just lead to more disobedience. So the command from Ezra and from the teachers of the law is, is be quiet, hush. Don't sit here and grovel. Go celebrate what God has done. You're back in the land. It's the month of Tishri. You can celebrate the feast. Now go and do it. And be sure to help those who are without the resources so that they can celebrate also. And so the people go their way and they carry out the Feast of Trumpets. They'd never celebrated the Feast of Trumpets. Probably sort of awkward for them. Maybe felt a little bit forced. But they celebrate. They rejoice, the text says. And how are they able to rejoice? Because the joy of the Lord is their strength. And that reminder about the joy of the Lord just beautifully accentuates this list of commands because I'm pretty sure at this moment for these people, joy was an emotion that seemed really, really far away. The exile, the exile itself was a product of Israel's disobedience, something they were certainly ashamed of. They'd returned to the land, but life there was extremely hard. Surrounding nations were threatening them. Men like Tobiah and Sanballat, they were sowing discord among the people. This building project they just completed consumed massive amounts of resources and energy. They are exhausted. And now the law has just been read to them, exposing the depths of their sin, causing them to mourn and to weep. So safe to say, there is no joy to be found amongst the people. Therefore, to have any kind of legitimate celebration, they are going to have to look beyond themselves, outside of themselves, by looking to the Lord who is joy, as that that phrase can actually be translated. 
And then the word for strength in that phrase is, is also translated refuge. So one of the, the things being taught here in Nehemiah is when your reservoir for joy is empty, when your circumstances, when they don't add up to joy, when either your failure or the failure of others leaves you grieving grieving without joy, the Lord, who is joy, supplies the strength to be joyful. You can actually hide in his joy. You can take refuge in his joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, the Lord is... He is never never stoic, nor is he frustrated. He is full of joy. He absolutely is. And those of you who struggle with, with having joy or keeping joy, or maybe you feel like you're always faking joy, please know that the answer to joy is not a different prescription or a longer vacation. It is more of the Lord. It's more worship. It's more obedience. It's more running to the Lord of joy and hiding in him as a refuge. So these first four four verses, they start with gloom as the people grieve over their sin. They they move to gladness as they look to the Lord of joy. And then they follow through with generosity as they provide the resources for everyone who is in need. And don't miss that last point because this detail about generosity, I think it's important. As we realize that we are the recipients of much, That our existence and therefore our abundance is from God's good hand. As we realize that, it becomes natural for us to then give to other people. We don't cling to our riches, nor do we look down on those who have need. We live open-handed lives, helping those who are in need, helping those who are around us that are in want. Because the whole law is fulfilled in that one statement. What is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. And these people, they went from transgressing every jot and tittle of the law to then fulfilling it entirely by these acts of generosity. I have no doubt that the people's obedience to this command to love their neighbors was the thing that was fueling their capacity to rejoice in this feast. Now on to the next point. Let's look at verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So this is what Mark referred to last week as the men's Bible conference. On the second day of the assembly, the the women and the children are left at home, and the men, they reconvene to study the Word of God. And this little detail here underscores an important reality, and that reality is this. Faithful men lead their families according to the word of God. And to do that, they need to know and internalize what the scripture says. Because there's a point, there's a point, fellas, where where just being a nice guy isn't really enough to lead a godly family. 
to serve a wife and disciple kids and make hard decisions that involve sacrifice and submission to God's word, that takes a lot more than just being a good dude. You have to know and love the word of God. So the men are gathering on this second day to study God's word. And I called this point corporate reading because it's impossible to read anything and not do interpretation. There is meaning and order and coherence to the words on the page. And reading the words begin to deliver that meaning to you. The exception may be Dr. Seuss. Not a lot of coherence or meaning there. Graduate school books also maybe in that category sometimes. But the words on the page, they begin to deliver the meaning. So as Mark pointed out last week, these men, they're doing expository type study. They're studying and asking questions about what is God's word saying? Why is this written? Who is it written to? What's it for? What does this mean for us? You know, and some of you love Bible study. You like the way it makes you feel, or you love apprehending new and exciting information, and that's great. You're in five Bible studies a week, and you subscribe to four podcasts, and you drive around listening to bot radio, and that's great. But listen to this illustration from John MacArthur's book, The Sword of the Spirit. This is important. It's kind of long, so bear with me, but it's important. He says, A person described three things he saw in a garden among the plants and the flowers. The first thing he saw was a butterfly that alighted on an attractive flower. It sat for a second or two, then moved on to another, seeing and touching many lovely blossoms, but deriving no benefit from them. Next came a botanist with a large notebook and a microscope. He spent a good deal of time over each flower and plant, making copious notes of each. But when he had finished, his knowledge was shut away in his notebook. Very little of it remained with him. Then a bee came along, entering a flower here and there and spending time in each, emerging from each blossom laden with pollen. It went in empty. It came out full. The illustration goes on. There are those who read the Bible, flitting from one favorite passage to another, but getting little from their reading. Others really study and take notes, but do not apply the teachings of Scripture. Others, like the bee, spend time over the Word, reading, marking, inwardly digesting, and then applying. Their minds are filled with wisdom and their lives with heavenly sweetness. Which are you? A butterfly? Flitting from class to class, Bible study to Bible study, seminar to seminar, book to book, flapping your pretty wings but never changing. A botanist with enough notebooks to sink a battleship? Or are you a bee coming in empty and going out full, turning your knowledge into the honey that makes life sweet? That sounds good to you, right? But what that means, and this is the hard part, what that means is that the Bible is going to grind on you a bit. The Word of God is going to confront you. You're going to have ways of seeing and ways of thinking that the Bible is going to enter into and say, no, 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 not like that, like this. Not, not, not that direction, this direction. No, God's not like that. God is like this. Marriage doesn't look that way. Marriage looks this way. So it should not be surprising to you that there are times that you're going to be reading things in Scripture that disagree with you. That's what Scripture's for. The Bible's divine purpose is to chisel away at you, to correct you, to bring reproof, and to point you to Jesus Christ. You know, because of Mark's longstanding ministry here, 26, going on 27 years now, 
This church has enjoyed just incredible Bible teaching and preaching. It really has. And so there's this tendency for us to become this sort of sermon appreciation society. We love good preaching. We know it when we hear it. We enjoy it. That's why we come here. It fills us up. We think it's great. But the problem is, we may be at times a sermon appreciation society, but the bigger point, the greater purpose, is for us to be a sermon application society. To not just love good preaching, but find ways to apply it to our lives. And I think I can speak for my fellow pastors and elders in saying that we'd rather you know one truth from God's word that you understand and apply than know 40 things that you never apply. James 1.22 is very, very important. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. That's what God is calling us to. Speaking of application, let's go to the next point here in your notes. We're going to read verse 16 to the end of the chapter. God's word said, So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day... The people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So lots of content here in this section about the Feast of Tabernacles, or as it was sometimes referred to, the Feast of Booths. And what this was, at heart, was a harvest celebration. It was to be held there in the month of Tishri, which corresponds with our months of September or October. And on the 15th day of the month, families would set up these tents or these lean-to type structures on the flat roofs of their houses or out in the courtyards and even in the temple. And they would make these shelters out of leaves and sticks and branches, and they would live inside of them for a week's time. And what's great about tabernacles is that it was a whole family affair. So where some of the other feast days were sort of for men only, this event occupied the attention and included the involvement of the whole family. And you can imagine the excitement that a week-long campout would generate amongst the children. This is a very joyous time. The rabbis said, and I quote, "...he who has not been in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles..." does not know what rejoicing means. Just a festive atmosphere. And this feast had three primary purposes, really. It was first and foremost a time of remembrance. They were remembering the wandering of their forefathers in the wilderness, how they lived in these portable living quarters for 40 years following God wherever he led them. They were remembering how God sustained them and and provided for them as they lived in tents. And it was also a time of witness. As the people of God observed this feast in Jerusalem, foreigners and other nations would see this odd practice and they would ask him, hey, what is all this about? And so at that point, the Israelites could tell the story of, a, of how God had chosen them and given them an inheritance and a blessing amongst his people or as his people. And then it was also a time of anticipation. Living in, in the tent for a week was a reminder that 
that they were sojourners on this earth, that their existence here was temporary, and that their true home was not an earthly one, it was a heavenly one. So there's a lot going on with the Feast of Tabernacles, but as the men gathered and studied these passages like Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16, they realized that they had this tremendous opportunity for national obedience, that an immediate way in which they could apply what they were learning in God's Word was right in front of them. In fact, they had this opportunity to reboot the whole Jewish calendar going forward. And so they built these tents outside their homes, which was a symbol that that family life is going to be in submission to God's word. And they built them in the house of God, signifying that that their religious life was going to be in full submission to God's word. And they built them in the city squares, demonstrating that the the marketplace was, was going to be subjected to the word of God as well. And if you were a foreigner passing through Jerusalem in the fall of 444 BC, you had to wonder you had to wonder, man, they, they just built this big, beautiful wall. They have this impressive sign of fortification and protection. You know, Jerusalem is reestablished. Why on earth are these people living in tents? The Israelites themselves were probably a bit puzzled as well. They had not observed the Jewish calendar and feast days with any sort of dedication for centuries. These people knew nothing of this. And here they are, pivoting from this massive wall-building project with stones and pulleys and back-breaking labor to now building these leafy little huts. What a contrast this is. And I think God providentially brought the completion of the wall together at the time of this feast so that they would not forget that even though they had a rebuilt city, here they have no lasting city. Even though they had a 40-foot wall to give them security, real security was in knowing the Lord and in trusting in Him. And maybe you've experienced this kind of providence as well. You've said a time or two, man, once we get this, real, this remodel finished, I'll finally feel at home. Once we move into, the nat- into that neighborhood, I'm going to feel so much safer. Once we get on that side of town, life's going to be so much better. And what do you find out every single time? A house is just a house. A zip code is just a zip code. Nothing all that special about any of it. Grass isn't really greener at all. Bills are just bigger. Mortgage is much higher. Home improvement's still a hassle. And though we have homes, and for most of us, they're really nice homes, this world is not designed to be our home. And the second that you feel like it is, like everything is ideal and perfect, like you've walked into your very own episode of Fixer Upper, God will give you a providential reminder that we are not to get too comfortable here. Why? Because we're not made to be here. We're made to be there. And that's what this feast is helping these people with. God is saying, you're in the land. The wall is finished. But you know what? I'm the most real to you when you're living in a tent and I'm giving you manna from heaven and water from a rock, trust me, trust me, not the wall. And as they recognize this feast according to God's word and as throughout the entire feast Ezra is reading from the word of God, their celebration gets richer and richer and more meaningful. Their joy is more and more full. It results in very great rejoicing, the text says. 
It also says that the people had not celebrated this feast with this much dedication and joy and wholeheartedness since the days of Joshua. Which doesn't mean they hadn't celebrated it. Ezra tried to celebrate it. There's an instance when Josiah tries to institute it. I think Solomon even tried to celebrate it. But it wasn't since first entering the land a thousand years before with Joshua leading them that the Feast of Tabernacles had gone off like this one had gone off. If you look at Leviticus 23, in it you'll find this prescription for the Feast of Tabernacles. And you'll see in the prescription that on the eighth day, the people are to do something very, very important to close out the celebration. So the revelry and the fun and the week-long camp out is over. And though it's not spelled out here in Nehemiah, Scripture tells us that on the eighth day, they're to come back together and they're to commit themselves to lives of holiness. The feast concludes with a kind of, of convocation of holiness. And I, as I close this morning, let's think about the only way that they're going to follow through with these commitments to holiness. The only way they'll do it is if they keep God's word open. The book's been brought before them. It's been read. It's been responded to. It's been studied. It's been applied. Now it must be kept open. It must be returned to day after day because its words and its words alone lead to the obedience that ultimately leads to joy. That's really the point of this entire chapter. Joy in obeying God's commands. We don't often pair holiness and joy, do we? We don't often pair those things because we so often think that God is out to, to ruin our fun, that he's a killjoy, all these prohibitions. But what this passage is telling us, what it's proving is that holiness is not antithetical to joy. Obedience is the only real pathway to it. I'll close here with a reading from the Bishop J.C. Ryle. These are some great words about Bible reading. He said this, he said, God has mercifully given us a book which is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. By reading that book, we may learn what to believe, what to be, and what to do, how to live with comfort, and how to die in peace. Happy is the man who possesses a Bible, Happier still is he who reads it. Happiest of all is he who not only reads it, but obeys it and makes it the rule of his faith and practice. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, you know, Jay, I don't really love the Bible. You know, reading it is, is a chore for me. Obeying it, I mean, I, I'm not even close. Let me ask you a question Have you met its author? These are God's words. This is delivered to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Have you met its author? You tend to appreciate and love books more when you know the author. Do you know the author of Scripture? The one who not just gave us, who didn't just give us his words, he gave us himself, he gave us his son to go to the cross for us, to die for the sin and shame that we all feel and we're all guilty of to shed his blood for us so that we can lay hold of grace and forgiveness and eternal life. When you arrive there, that's when this book comes alive to you and it works on you 
and it gives you the fuel to then obey it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together this morning. Thank you that we get to be here as a gathered people, people praising you and encouraging one another and enjoying the, the, the blessings of just body life. Lord, I pray that you've been glorified this morning. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate this text in the hearts and minds of these people. That they would not just come in and appreciate a sermon or rate a sermon or judge a sermon, but they would walk out of here with something to do because of, not the sermon, but because of your word that's been opened. Lord, I pray for those who maybe never put their trust in you. That the Bible seems to be just a foreign book to them. Lord, I pray that they would look to Christ alone, that he would save them right where they're at, and God, that they would be then people who constantly go to your book, keep it open, and use it to live lives in obedient commitment to you. Lord, we thank you for this time again together. Uh, I pray that you go with these people as they leave this place. Make them ambassadors for you. And Lord, they're not going to celebrate a feast like tabernacles or do something um, that's seemingly that odd. But maybe there are things that would seem crazy to a watching world that are consistent with your word that will give them an opportunity to share about your faithfulness and love for them. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Go ahead and stand for our benediction, please. If you are visiting with us, there is a welcome center out uh, here in uh, the, the hallway space. It's at the far end, at the west end. We invite you to stop by there, get some information about our church. We may gather a little bit of information about you so we can know how to minister to you in the weeks and days to come. Thank you for being here with us. You're our honored guest. Taking the benediction right from this text of Scripture, where the writer says, Go your way, for this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Go in his joy this morning. You're dismissed.